with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, July 27th. We begin with a wrap-up of the Pope's visit to Alberta, which concluded Tuesday following Mass at Commonwealth Stadium. We speak with Jeremy Bergen, a professor of religious studies from the University of Waterloo, for his thoughts on how the Pope's apology was received here in the province and if the Catholic Church needs to go further. Premier Jason Kenney announcing the removal of the provincial tax on gas weeks ago and the market price of oil has declined. So why aren't we seeing these factors being reflected at the price at the pumps? We discuss with Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Next, an update on the Roger Shaw deal. We speak with Ben Kloss, PhD candidate in journalism and communication from Carleton University. Ben discusses the impact last month's Rogers outage may have on the deal and how merging the companies may not give consumers the best bang for their buck. And finally, the weather is heating up ahead of the long weekend. We get some tips on water safety for those planning a float down the river to keep cool from Carol Henke, Public Information Officer with the Calgary Fire Department. Pope Francis leaves Alberta this morning for Quebec, the next stop in his pilgrimage of penance. But will real action follow the pontiff's apology? With some insight, we're joined this morning by Jeremy Bergen, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theological Studies at Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo. Good morning to you, Jeremy. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. It's very good to be here. So, I mean, Pope Francis apologized for the actions of members of the Catholic Church, but stopped short of apologizing for the Church as a whole. How did you interpret the language that was used in the Pope's apology? Well, I think that's very right. Um, and certainly many people have, have noted uh, that, that distinction. Um, I mean, I think part of it has to do with some particularities in how uh, Roman Catholics understand the Church. But I think in terms of moving forward, I mean, I do think it's actually quite important for um, for the Church to recognize that it was not simply some individuals, but rather it was Church policy, uh, it was church, uh, church culture, Church practices. It was deeply ingrained uh, in what the Church was doing, um, to advance this policy of cultural assimilation and destruction through the residential schools. So I think one of the things that I think is needed is a continued uh, reckoning with simply the magnitude and the dimensions of the harm that was happened, the, the harm that happened, uh, and the churches, and indeed I think all Canadians' uh, responsibility in that past. All right, uh, let's continue this conversation uh, with a, a, a term I've never heard before, uh, Jeremy, which is a doctrine of discovery. Now, there are calls for the Roman Catholic Church uh, to remove the doctrine of discovery. What exactly is it, and, and why should it be eliminated? Well, the doctrine of discovery was a, a theological and legal idea that uh, a number of popes um, 500 years ago uh, proclaimed, and they basically said that when European colonizers uh, discover lands that are new to them, uh, if they are inhabited by people who are not Christian, uh, then they can basically regard them as empty, and they can claim them. The first one there gets to claim them. And so that was really the basis for the claims by uh, Spain and France and England and, and other European countries as they came to, to North and South America. And I think what's significant here is it's, it's really the basis for the dispossession of land. And so while the residential schools 
um, were places where where there was there was much abuse and there was loss of culture. They were also part of this bigger picture of of removing uh, indigenous people from the land and taking the land. And so I think the doctrine of discovery and 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 denouncing it is part of a process that says that was wrong and there needs to be actions to repair uh, that harm. I also heard, Professor, this morning that there was some criticism that, you know, the, the Pope did not mention any of the sexual abuse that took place at the Indian residential schools particularly. Do you think that was um, a, an important omission from the Church's perspective? Frankly, to me, it was a very puzzling omission. Um, I, I'm not sure uh, why why that was not included. Um, I think the the presence of sexual abuse has clearly been documented, um, and it's been acknowledged by some other um, Catholic uh, bishops and leaders and religious orders. Uh, and so it's really puzzling uh, that the Pope didn't mention that, and and understandably very disturbing, uh, I think, to those uh, many of those who heard it. Mm-hmm. We have learned over the past year and a half or so, and I'm, I'm sure that those in the know have been made aware that the Catholic Church has a large collection of indigenous artifacts, and they have for quite some time. Why haven't these artifacts been returned to indigenous people, and can you see that happening? Well, I have no particular insight into what may be happening in the the inner sanctums uh, of the Vatican. I think what's what's important here is is for church leaders to hear uh, from survivors and their communities that that is very important, just how uh, damaging and destructive it is for those, in many cases, ceremonial objects to be so far away um, and to be in the hands of, of those who, who did this harm. I hope that uh, one of the things that the Church is doing through this process is recognizing the importance of listening to what survivors are calling for uh, and responding. So I don't know if it will happen, but I would certainly um, advise the Church, if they would listen to me at all, uh, that, that that is one of, of a number of actions that they should do. Jeremy, as a professor of religious studies, a professor of theological studies, do you feel like this pilgrimage of penance, as the Pope has dubbed it, is it more about the Church's image, or do you really believe this is a genuine step towards reconciliation? Well, you know, I think any apology, and, and I think this whole trip as a whole, in many ways has two audiences that it's trying to speak to. And I think the first uh, is, of course, the survivors and those who are harmed to try to um, bring about some recognition and some healing to them through this acknowledgement and apology and, and through further steps. But I think it also is trying to speak to um, those in the Church that may uh, be skeptical of whether this history happened or we're not sure if anything needs to be done. So I, I hope that it's, it's uh, doing that not simply for the sake of its self-image, but for the sake of doing the right thing. Uh, and also to, I think, remind Canadians that, you know, an apology was made by Prime Minister Stephen Harper uh, on behalf of all Canadians for the role of Canada uh, in these schools. So I think it's an opportunity for uh, people in, in churches, but also all Canadians, to reckon with this history uh, and to take concrete steps to uh, repair it. Jeremy, obviously this is something that we have been consumed with. It has very much been a front-page news in our nation, and deservedly so. 
But it's interesting. I have seen on social media over the past handful of days international headlines grabbing the Pope's visit and shining the spotlight on what has happened, what is a shameful thing that's happened in our nation. How important is that for the world to now become aware of what has happened to our indigenous people? I think that's really important. Um, And I think, you know, the Pope as a global figure is able to draw attention to this history in a way that probably no Canadian um, religious leader could. Uh, And so I think that's tremendously beneficial for, for accountability uh, the world is watching uh, what what we as Canadians do, but I also think uh, you know it, there are there is a, a, a process of reckoning with a somewhat similar history happening in the United States um, with boarding schools and residential schools in that country, and so I think uh, this visit and the profile that it brings to the issue can also help uh, some of those processes maybe in some other places as well. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your interest. Thank you. Jeremy Bergen, Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Theological Studies, Conrad Grable University College at the University of Waterloo. Well, we know gas prices have dropped around Calgary and across the province after the provincial government said it will look into price gouging in this province. Joining us to break it all down is the gas price wizard himself, Dan McTagg. Good morning to you, Dan. Thanks for being with us. (laughs) Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andy. Is the a little bit of fear behind the drop in gas prices here in the province of Alberta? I'm not sure, uh, because I think when I do my calculations... Dan, we've lost you. Come in, Dan. Dan. Come in, Dan. I'm here. Oh, you, there. You still okay, some gas in the again. tank. Okay. <laughs> oh, you... must, I, I want to thank my uh, service provider. I won't mention which name, but... <laughs> I think we can all guess. Can Starts you start... with an R, ends with an ERN. <laughs> can but you anyway, start from uh, the top, please? Yeah, look, uh, gas stations about, uh, uh, you know, anywhere from 147 all the way up to, I've seen some as high as $1.71. It's costing gas stations today replacement cost taxes in about a buck thirty-five for their fuel. Uh, so if, uh, you know, if you're seeing $1.70, you have to know that the retail margin would be $0.35 cents a litre, less, of course, GST. Uh, that is about three times what one would see as the normal retail margin judging by the past, as well as taking into account uh, the fact that some gas stations were as low as six or seven cents a litre, which is kind of hard to operate on. Bottom line is that uh, we're still a long way off. We're we're far from getting out of the woods here. Uh, I think that gas in your province, uh, and certainly in places like Calgary, uh, shouldn't be anything more, uh, generously speaking, than $1.50 a litre. And so if you're seeing anything higher than that, uh, you, you still have a problem. Well, the issue is, Dan. I mean, with the exception of the Costco's and the UFAs, which are you know a buck forty-seven, I'm seeing on GasBuddy.com, and you look around at the, the different range on our neighborhoods, and it can be one fifty-six to one seventy-two point nine. Obviously, we have a right to shop where we want to, uh, but you don't want to drive around town. So, is there not going to be a natural co- uh, uh, correction when you see something one seventy-two to one fifty-six? Well, there has to be a correction. The problem is when and why are they being held aside? Does someone have a significant amount of market power to maintain prices? These are things that uh, the Premier has indicated quite correctly should be uh, should be looked at, not just by the Competition Bureau, but I think it's important, uh, Andy, uh, that we have a circumstance where we are informed of what ought to be, you know, uh, generous pricing and uh, allowing everyone not to lose their shirt. And I think 15 cents a litre is, is that number. Uh, I can prove that, uh, you know, in any other major city, whether it's Vancouver, 
which is about a seven eight cent retail margin. Toronto, which is eight point five cents. Montreal, which is seven cents. I'm going to give Calgary fifteen, and that still makes it a dollar fifty a liter. Why are you being forced to pay a dollar seventy two? It's not. You can't make the argument after a month, month and a half of you know these falling wholesale prices that gas stations still have inventory that they haven't sold in the past month. That's simply not true. I'm willing to give them three or four days, but uh, on a day like today, the replacement cost for every gas station in Calgary is a dollar thirty-five point one cents a liter, and that doesn't take into account, uh, you know, the discounts they might get from their supplier for moving bigger volumes. Dan, what's the penalty if you know someone is a, a gas station is found to be price gouging? If the premier is looking into this, what kind of penalty could they face? I don't know of any legislation called price gouging. I do know that at the federal level, the Competition Bureau has two tracks it can take when it comes to uh, price fixing. But I think that's it's a question of market dominance and probably price maintenance as opposed to price fixing. And the penalties are usually administrative. Uh, they go back to the government. They don't go back to consumers. Uh, this is an issue I fought for. Now, your premier will know this for a good 15, 18 years when I was a member of parliament. Uh, the, the penalty is more... Um, uh, you know, the shaming of what's going on. And I don't think you need to go that far, have the Bureau involved for the next six months or a year to find out something that's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. The numbers speak very clearly to the fact that consumers are not being well served and it is time for gas stations right across the province. And I suggest, uh, I, I don't stop at Alberta. It's the same thing in Saskatchewan. It's the same thing in Manitoba. And it's the same thing in central B.C. Uh, gas stations have got to recognize that uh, in tough times like this, the last thing they should be doing is tripling their retail margins. There is absolutely no excuse for it. And uh, I think it's time for gas stations, their owners, whoever should own them, the big chains, the Parklands, the Essos, uh, the Shells, to explain clearly why they find it acceptable to uh, basically fleece the public uh, and consumers by as much as 30 cents a litre. And so I forecast, if we, if we, if we can review, uh, obviously right now we, we're seeing a bit of a downward trend, uh, but will it go back up before we start to see some stability an inch down? You mentioned that it's not going to be an overnight thing where prices become much more agreeable. I think it would be fair to say that when prices do go up on markets, uh, retailers tend to hold off a lot longer than they do, say, places like Ontario or Quebec uh, or Vancouver, for that matter, or Victoria. There tends to be a bit of a, a lag they won't immediately pass on market increases. And that usually is a phenomenon that we see lasting no more than a week. It's always been a tried and true for the 28 years in which I've been predicting gas prices accurately across the country that, you know, the week, week and a half is about as much as you can see going either way. When the market prices go up, it takes about a week for them to be reflected the pumps. Same when they go down. Not this time. For the past month, uh, gas stations, their chains have been basically putting the brakes on passing on those dramatic decreases. And, and it's not just, of course, the gas stations making money. It's that it contributes mightily to inflation. And you have the bank governor, uh, Tiff Macklin, coming out and saying, hey, you know what, uh, gas prices have a lot to do with inflation. More importantly, weakness in the Canadian dollar because we're not selling enough oil and gas has a lot to do with why I'm going to have to raise interest rates. I know that's a hard concept to swallow in <laughs> five-second sound bites, but... The reality is that we have to take energy pricing extraordinarily seriously because it has an impact on the bottom line for everybody. And if those are out there who want to deny this, that's fine. But, you know, wait till it starts affecting food prices and everything else. Albertans are entitled to what I believe uh, at least a 10 to 20 cent decrease from what they're paying today. If they're paying 170, I think that should happen post-haste. You always say it like it is. Thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Sue. Take care, Andy. Thanks, Dan. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. You can find him online at Gas Price Wizard.
The CRTC is investigating that Mass Rogers outage that impacted more than 11 million wireless customers across the country recently. Is Rogers' acquisition of Shaw now in jeopardy because of it? Joining us to discuss is Ben Class, PhD candidate at Carleton University School of Journalism and Communication. Good morning to you, Ben. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good day, good day. Okay, let's talk about the latest into the investigation of the Rogers outage. We've been hearing uh, little clips from the uh, the head of Rogers saying, you know, it'll never happen again. We're finding ways to avoid it ever being able to be possible even. What's the latest on the investigation itself? Uh, so we heard um, the Minister of uh, Industry telling the Parliamentary Committee on uh, Monday yesterday that uh, he had spoken directly to the head of Rogers, as well as the other telecom CEOs, and that he demanded they take action, um, and that we are to trust that uh, they will, will you know, um, follow his instructions. We also heard the chairman of the CRTC start shrugging his shoulders and saying, "These things are ha- these things will happen, but we'll look into it." Um, and so, I guess we're going to wait and see if the uh, government actually puts its money where its mouth is and opens up a formal investigation, or whether there's just a report and uh, sort of move along, nothing to see here. Ben, we've heard bits and pieces coming out of Rogers about what is being done. But, to, you know, in actuality, are there measures that they can take to prevent a massive outage like this from being repeated? Is there actually something that can be done to prevent it? Well, I'm sure Rogers is doing everything in its power. But, um, you know, with these types of large technical systems, uh, I think it's virtually impossible to, to provide a 100 percent guarantee uh, that there won't be an outage. Uh, you know, I think that uh, what we should be investigating here is how to put contingencies in place and getting a framework uh, set up so that when this does happen again, uh, there won't be such confusion and uh, an outrage. You know, I think that there's a role for institutions like the CRTC to set up some sort of a framework so that there are formal obligations uh, that the companies have towards their customers when they don't provide the services that they promised. Yeah, and Ben, what would that entail? Do you think it, it best, you know, best scenario is it the ability to piggyback on another carrier, particularly for nine one one services, et cetera? What are your thoughts on that? So, I think that there's a number of best practices we can look at. For instance, uh, in the line industry, there's a schedule of rates, uh, or, you know, compensation that's established ahead of the fact instead of. Um, you know, having the company just make a judgment about how much they think their customers deserve. Uh, we have laws and regulations that set out what they're obliged to provide their customers. So that'd be something that we can import into the telecom space. And then another thing, you know, I was at that committee and I told the parliamentarians, it really should be a no-brainer for a company like Rogers to just have better communication so that people aren't scrambling around to figure out what's going on. Yeah, we were caught by that ourselves mm-hmm. here, Ben, that morning, uh, not wonder, wondering why we couldn't get an Uber <laughs> to come and pick us up for the Stampede Parade, in fact. Uh, let's, um, <laughs> it, was, it was tough. We still got our boots on and had our pancakes. Mm-hmm. We had a good time in the end. Let's talk about this because uh, they're, one of the concerns is that this will create a monopoly. And one of the concerns on the other side is that we should have more competition among Canadian wireless providers. What will it take to get more competition, Ben? Is this a possibility, or is the old argument that we don't have the population to back it up going to stick? Uh, No, you know, I think there's a number of different ways to arrange uh, for more competition in the marketplace. And actually, for the last about uh, 15 years, um, the government's been working pretty hard to put the conditions in place for that type of competition. So, you know, we saw Shaw purchase Freedom Mobile in 2016, uh, and since that time, uh, we've got new offers coming into the market. You know, unlimited plans have become available on mobile wireless markets. The amount of data people have 
um, has increased. And while the prices in Canada are still high by international standards, uh, there has been improvement uh, over what we've seen in the past. So, you know, this idea that Rogers is going to be allowed to take over Shaw would really put a stake in the heart of those improvements that we've seen in recent years. And I think it should be a non-starter. Are the fees and the costs that we do pay, are they legit or does it feel like we, you know, I know people think that's too high. We are being fleeced, but is it just the the, the fact that we do have such a, a, a giant land mass and that the smaller population, as Andy mentioned earlier? Uh, you know, I think that um, the, there, there's a great debate that's taking place over these uh, exact issues. Um, but when you look at the financial performance of the telecoms companies in Canada, you see that their profit margins are uh, fairly high by uh, comparison to other uh, companies around the world. So, you know, there are a lot of um, sort of, uh, how do I put this? Um, there's room for interpretation when you start introducing variables like the amount of snowfall we have per year and the average temperature. Mm-hmm. But when you get down to the financials, these companies are actually earning higher profits than their peers around other words, uh, 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 around other countries. And that really strongly points to prices that are higher than they should be. Ben, you know, for those who've been following the hearing with both stakeholders, the businesses and the government, are you wondering exactly, you know, how much longer it'll take till we, till we get some kind of a resolution? What, what is the next step? What's the path ahead until we have an answer? Uh, so the Competition Bureau, uh, I think it really is the main government body that's looking into the merger between Rogers and Shaw. Uh, and they have, um, to the surprise of many observers, including myself, actually come out opposing the merger outright. Uh, it's a very complex issue, and they've recently just asked for some more time. Um, I think we're looking at the end of the year before the hearings take place. So early next year, I think we should have uh, an idea of what's going to happen with that merger. Um, and Rogers actually just this morning on their uh, conference call announced that they had pushed their date back uh, to the end of the year, expecting when it's uh, going to have a decision that's based on their access to the many billions of dollars they need to close the transaction. So I think it's pretty sure that by Christmas time, we'll know what's going to happen. Talking about our wireless service in this country, it sure gets people worked up. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Ben Klass is a PhD candidate at Carleton University School of Journalism and uh, Communication. I think the impact in, in why Canadians are interested in this is because this is one example of, of when, you know, when we talk about the Competition Bureau, when we you know, very much could be because we understand the impact of that monthly cell phone bill. We understand when you're getting a new phone, you might not have the choices. And when you speak with friends from the U.S. and other countries, mm-hmm. that we are not getting such sweetheart deals like our friends and family are across the globe. No. So, so it really is more, it impacts me, impacts my family. It mm-hmm. might impact your business if you have several sure, cell phones. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it, it, the due diligence has to be there from the government and the competition bureau. And, and I am the guy to say less government. But in this case, when you see uh, was the, the CEO of Rogers coming out and saying, I, I think we have a very competitive market and this will only increase competition. Uh, really? Oh, come on. Like, I don't uh, think many people buy in into that. Could that be? Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not uh, you know, an expert when it comes to math or economics, uh, but when one person holds the purse strings, it's at any price I want. If it's my lemonade stand, yeah. it's interesting. And when the, you know, it's already a, a high cost, the government needs to keep a close eye on this. And in this, in this case, the CRTC obviously really needs to be watching and making sure that this is the right move for Canadians. Well, you've know, you got to look at it from, from if, if you were the Rogers uh, company and you were behind this deal, quarterbacking this deal or in the inner circle, Things seem to be going. There's the odd rough bump here and there. And then this happens. Yeah. Because then it's not just about the the money that Canadians spend, but it's about the safety as far as the, you know, that whole reliability factor. When we were 
essentially cut off at the knees when you can't call 911. I think that's important as far as that safety aspect. But yeah, the timing, if you thought that was a slam dunk, the deal, uh, maybe not so much anymore. According to the Alberta Life Saving Society, there are on average 30 fatal drownings in the province each year. So before you float down the river this weekend, be sure you take all the precautions to keep you and your family safe. With tips and insight, we are joined by Carol Hankey, Public Information Officer with the Calgary Fire Department. Good morning to you, Carol. Good morning, Andy. You know, our summers are so short that I think we get out, we get very much excited. So sometimes common sense might not be so common, Carol. So can you give us some some tips on how to make it a safe trip? I know there's so many you could list, but what should people keep in mind before they leave? Well, ultimately, I, I want to start with where there's water, there's risk. So in spite of doing everything correctly and being completely prepared for floating down the river, things can still go wrong. So it's there is going to be a risk, even if you try to minimize it. What our aquatics crews are seeing a lot of is still people not wearing life jackets. People are still tying their rafts together. And we are seeing an increase in stand-up paddle boarding on the river. And in swift water, that can be quite dangerous if you have a leash around your ankle and it's not a quick-release leash. So we we have seen some incidents with regards to that. Now, Carol, I you know, it's hot out and I don't want to wear my life jacket, specifically wear it, but I've got it with me. That should be fine, right? Uh, if you're on shore, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you have so, to be wearing it, correct? You can, when when you hit something and there are hazards in the river and some of them might be right under the water that you don't see, if you hit something like a bridge abutment, you are going to flip. The chances of you not flipping are, are quite uh, quite small. And you will just not be able to grab your life jacket in time. You need to be wearing it and it needs to be done up and it needs to be properly fitting. Another concern that uh, our aquatics teams have brought up is that when people in a group are floating in multiple rafts, sometimes parents are putting their small children in a different raft. Yes, with a life jacket, but if they get separated or their raft flips, they're on their own. So if you have children with you, keep them in your craft with you. And oh, can I add that the other thing we're seeing is floaties or crafts that are not indicated for a wilderness swift water setting. I mean, yes, we're in the city, but the pool floaties, the flamingos and those things, those are indicated for a pool or a lake setting, not for an area where you have sharp rocks and driftwood and uh, stumps of wood, you know, sticking out that can easily puncture and cause your, your craft to deflate. What about this is something that I've seen campaigns on, advertising campaigns, but I'm wondering if people are getting the message. Have you seen people with, with beer, for example, on their rafts this year? Is this something people are still doing? Alcohol and cannabis don't mix with water. It is going to impair your ability to react and, uh, and save yourself. So it, it, is, it is not allowed. If you get caught, there might be a fine. And... Uh, it's, it's just going to decrease your ability to handle an emergency situation that, that comes up unexpected. Carol, what about, you know, if somebody is out on the river and they're doing everything they can, but they get into a bit of trouble, do they call 911? Is that what they're supposed to do immediately? Yes. 
And uh, we also advise, I mean, you need to have a safety kit with you. Any craft that you're going to go on the river on, be it a stand-up paddleboard, kayak, canoe, dinghy, inner tube, you need to have a safety kit. And that that means a bailing device, a paddle or an oar to help you control your craft, a sound signaling device such as, um, you know, a whistle, a heaving rope or towing line that's 15 meters long, and if you're out at night, a navigation or safety light. But you should also have a cell phone with you in a waterproof container so that if you do get into trouble, uh, we see people that are stranded on the islands along the Bow River when their craft has deflated, that you can call for help. Mm-hmm. That's something that I would not think of. Yeah, a waterproof put it container. in a Ziploc. Some great yes. tips, uh, great and timely tips. Uh, uh, Carol, thanks so much for your time. Oh, any time. And, I mean, we want people to have a fun weekend, but be safe. And remember, where there's water, there's risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, very, very much time. Want to enjoy it, but do it safely. Thank you. Yeah. That is uh, uh, Carol Henke, Public Information Officer with the Calgary Fire Department. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.